Okay, contentment is the ability to be satisfied with what one has. It's basically an ease with one's current situation. And the virtue of contentment has long been discarded by the West. And it's been discarded in exchange for greed and lust. We want more than we have. We want a bigger car. We want a bigger house. We want a more attractive spouse or a better boyfriend and girlfriend. We want a higher paying job, a funnier circle of friends, more status, wealth, prosperity. Well, even more happiness. Sometimes we want even more contentment. And you might say, what's wrong with wanting a better life? What is wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing? Most people don't realize that desire springing from discontentment does not lead to satisfaction in life. Because the more you have, the more you are discontent because there's always more that you can get. It leaves us hollow and envious of others who are in the situation that we ourselves want to be in. It causes us to be distrustful in our relationships because if we live amongst the discontent people, then we can constantly be worried that they are discontent with us. We'll be worried that they'll reject us and abandon us as soon as someone better comes along. And you've had that experience, I'm sure some of you guys, where you've had some people that have been your best friend until a better friend comes along and then you're left in the dust or your mate gets a girlfriend, you don't see him anymore, see you later. Well, we've seen the last couple of weeks, this exact thing, a lack of contentment in the stories of Genesis. Esau's lack of contentment causes him to plot the murder of his brother. He's not content with his situation. Jacob's lack of contentment causes him to deceive his father Isaac. Isaac's lack of contentment causes him to disregard the will of God and to desire Esau over Jacob, although he very well knows the prophecies. Often our own hopes, dreams and desires obscures God's good, holy, righteous plan for us. We find ourselves chasing our dreams over and against what God wants for us. And today we're going to be looking at Jacob the deceiver, who deceived his father, is now going to become the deceived. He's going to fall into his own trap. We're going to see how his lack of contentment and rejoicing over his bride will set the stage for a lot of heartache and travesty later in his life. So I've got three points that I want to go over with you guys. The first point I've got is the desirable bride. The second point I've got is the undesirable bride. And my third point is God's desired bride. So first point, the desirable bride, Genesis 29 verse 1. Please read with me. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. What did the sheep and go pasture them? But they said, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. 
And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, this sounds an awful lot like a story we've heard before, doesn't it? Abraham's servant, you remember that guy? You remember what he came to do? He came to this exact place, perhaps sat at this exact well and watched as Rebekah, Jacob's mother, came and watered his camels. She was as beautiful as Rachel, as desirable for a wife. And I'm sure Jacob heard this story of how his parents met countless times and he recognizes the similarities in what has happened before. All that toil, that long trip out in the sun, walking for at least months on end, all of the blisters that are accumulated on the bottoms of his feet, the dangers from bandits, the dangers from wild animals, the lack of rations, the, uh, the, the fear of lack of water, all the trials that he has faced, and he's finally given success. He's finally made it to the city, and there is water. There's everything he needs. And he comes to some men, they're gathering their sheep by the well, and he learns that his uncle Laban is alive and well. Great, because he has not heard about this Laban character since his mother left. They don't even know whether or not he's still going to be alive, whether or not he has ended up making a name for himself or becoming anyone. We find out that he's got some daughters, in particular Rachel, and she's leading her father's sheep to water, which normally is the the job for sons to do. This is because Laban has no sons. He only has two daughters. And so Rachel is taking care of the family sheep. And she comes in, probably sunburnt, perhaps a little sweaty, wearing the garb of a shepherdess. But to Jacob, she is one of the most welcome sights he has seen. Immediately, he rushes to the well. And there's this big stone right on on the surface of this well that multiple men have to come lift. And Jacob, in a feat of like brute strength, runs in and rips this whole well off. He's so ecstatic to see Rachel, probably trying to show off a little bit to her as well. He rips it off like it's nobody's business and begins watering the sheep. And Rachel's probably like, who is this guy? What is he doing? This is coming out of nowhere. And then he goes up to her and kisses her and starts weeping. This must be the strangest man she's ever met in her life. What is going on? Well, he doesn't go kiss her on the lips. That would probably be a bit too much. This is the standard greeting for family members. If you guys probably come from a more Mediterranean or Middle Eastern background, it's standard to greet your relatives with a kiss on the cheek. And so Jacob is coming up and treating Rachel like she is a relative, which indeed she is. And so he's come up, it's overwhelming. He's been given success in his mission. He's come off this huge trip. He's realized it's been successful and he's just met potentially his future wife. It's just like he's, just like it happened for Abraham's servant, just like it happened for his father. And I would wager a guess, but Jacob was already smitten by this young woman. He was already in love. Everything was perfect. And although so many elements were the same as before, there is a difference. When Abraham's servants came, he came with wealth. He came with camels. He came with servants. He came with gifts. Jacob shows up, probably looking like the wild man coming out of the wilderness, right? Probably had a few days without shaving. Probably more like a month without shaving. He's got no camels, nothing of value, no servants, no great wealth, and he is alone. Jacob has nothing to offer Rachel or Laban Accept the promises of Abraham and the name of Abraham. But Jacob doesn't yet realize what kind of man Laban is. And he's a man full of flattery, but underneath the surface, 
Laban is definitely a malevolent, villainous sort of character. So let's keep reading. Verse 13. My second point, the undesirable bride. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So Rachel leaves Jacob at this well and she runs off to tell her father what has happened, which is generally what you do in this. And, and Laban runs back, he immediately embraces and kisses Jacob, as I said before, the proper greeting for your relatives. And he uh, tells him that he is the heir to all of Isaac's belongings, I'm sure, and that he's here to find a wife, because it says here that he tells him all these things. We're not quite certain what all these things entail, but at the very least that he was sent here to find a wife. Now, it'd be interesting to know, does it, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it would be very interesting to know how much Jacob shares about Esau. How much Jacob shares that, oh, and by the way, when I return to reclaim my inheritance, my brother is going to kill me and he's also kind of got all that inheritance at the moment. So, I'm not, I, he may have swept that one under the rug, we'll see what happens, because I'm pretty sure if I was in Laban's position, I would not be interested marrying any of my daughters off to a guy that might get killed when he returns back to where he was. Regardless, Jacob... Uh, Laban is, welcomes J Jacob in as a brother. He lets him stay with the family. He stays for a month. And now during the month, we know from the next chapter that Jacob was tending Laban's sheep. Jacob was a domestic man. He wasn't a man out in the wilderness looking after sheep. And so he had to acquire a whole bunch of new skills. He had to turn from kind of like a sissy boy into a hardworking man. And who else was there to show him the ropes but Rachel, right? The shepherdess. He was looking after the flocks. It's kind of sounding a little bit like a Hallmark Christmas movie at this point. Rachel and uh, Jacob rubbing shoulders as she shows him the ropes looking after the sheep. Laban is obviously impressed with Jacob's efforts because he pulls Jacob to the side and says, hey, you can't keep working here for free. Name your price. What do you want me to pay you? How do you want to be recompensed? And Jacob already knows what he wants. He wants to marry Rachel. This is where we learn about another daughter. Leah. She's the older sister. And the text tells us that her eyes are weak, but Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on when it says that her eyes are weak. Uh, perhaps she was plagued with an eye infection. Maybe she had a lazy eye. Maybe she had hay fever and had puffy red eyes. Maybe you could actually read it the other way and say that her eyes were beautiful, but they were the only beautiful thing about her. The key thing is, is we don't necessarily know what it means, but we know what it's saying. Rachel is the more attractive daughter. Rachel is the one that Jacob wants to marry purely because she is more attractive. Now, Leah probably wasn't ugly, but she wasn't as attractive. She was overlooked. And Jacob wasn't interested in her because he loved Rachel. 
And I want to note a little pattern beginning to form here. If you study literature, you'll know that it's kind of these repetition and parallelisms where uh, Rebecca and Laban, they're brother and sister, and they have very similar characteristics. They both have two children. Rebecca has two sons, right? Esau, Jacob. Laban has two daughters. In both of them, one child is more desirable than the other. For Rebecca, Esau is the more desirable one. He's the stronger, tougher, more manly figure. Obviously, the choice of Isaac. And for Laban, obviously, his younger daughter is more attractive. And Jacob, he is looking on the outward appearance. Just as Isaac was. Esau, the stronger, older, more capable, desirable brother. Rachel, the younger, more attractive, desirable sister. And it's this common theme of sibling rivalry, where the older sister is jealous of her more attractive younger sister, or the younger brother envious of his older brother's skills and status and competencies. And Jacob, well, if he wasn't so smitten by Rachel's appearance, he may have noticed some red flags about her, something we learn much later about her. He may have been paid more attention we see that Rachel is an idolater. She smuggles her father's household idols and gods out with them when they leave. A bit later, we're going to read. She initiates a brutal war of childbearing we're going to see next chapter. Jacob was letting his passion cloud his understanding just as his father Isaac had, and he let his affections cloud his choice over which sister he would rejoice in and marry. And Jacob formally asks for Rachel's hand in marriage in exchange for seven years of labor. Why? He's got nothing to offer. Normally, you would pay a price, a bride price. He's got nothing to offer him except hard work. And so Jacob, as flat broke, decides he's going to pay his way, earn earn his case. And Laban is only too happy to have Jacob continue to work for him. Laban finally has a son. He finally has someone that he can work hard. And it was a good deal for both of them. Laban even mentions that Jacob is the best marital option available to him. He says in verse 19, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. He doesn't have many other options around him. Jacob is the most eligible bachelor he has to consider. In fact, his options seem to be so limited that he's starting to think Jacob might be a good option for both of his daughters. And he begins to cook up a scheme. Maybe he can kill two birds with one stone. It's my third point, God's desired bride. Keep reading with me, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be a servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be a servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Well, you know the name Jacob means deceiver, and the deceiver here has been deceived. We begin to see what kind of man Laban is. Dodgy, 
He's just as deceptive and dishonest as Jacob was. And in one fell sweep, Laban not only wrongs Jacob, but he wrongs Rachel and he wrongs his daughter Leah. But Leah could have stopped it. At any moment, she could have said, hey, Jacob, my father swapped me out. Quick, stop this whole thing from happening. But she doesn't. She goes along with the plan. Maybe for Leah, she saw this as the only opportunity she had for a husband. And she took it. She played along with her father. Now, the parallels to the deception of Isaac are uncanny. Blind Isaac is deceived where he couldn't see who it was. Jacob was deceived at night when he couldn't see who it was. The undesirable sibling is swapped with the desired sibling. Jacob is swapped with, uh, Esau is swapped with Jacob. Rachel is swapped with Leah. Leah is given the privilege of being the mother of the covenant and not Rachel, just as Jacob was given the privilege of the covenant over Esau. In both tales, God allows this to happen. In both tales, God works despite this deception. God chose Jacob. And listen, God chose Leah. God chose the undesirable brother and he chose the undesirable sister. Leah would become the mother of Judah, the mother of the covenant, the mother of the future Messiah, and the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. God chose Leah. And you might be thinking, how on earth? All of us kind of act like Jacob. Imagine the night of your wedding, if you're a married person here, to find your spouse swapped out. You would be outraged. You would be livid. And that's exactly what happens with Jacob here. He's dumbfounded. Just as Isaac trembled when he realized he had blessed Jacob and not Esau, I'm sure he trembled a little bit too when he woke up and behold, it was Leah. Jacob, in unbelief, was too in love with Rachel to realize that God had chosen Leah the same way that he had chosen Jacob. Think about it. Isaac, by faith, recognized that God had chosen Jacob and did not revoke the blessings, did he? He kept the blessings intact. He sensed God's amen. But Jacob was attached. And just like Jacob, sometimes we are too attached to our passions, our hopes, our dreams, to see what God is actually doing in our lives. Too often we are outraged by our plans falling apart Or we feel wronged by God that something didn't work out the way that we wanted to. Now, heaven forbid anything like this happened to you. But often we aren't content with the things that God has given to us and we long for more. We demand more from Him, not realizing that our plans are going to bring us heartache and misery. It's exactly what happens to Jacob here. He has the choice right now. He could accept the wife that God has given to him even though it happened through deception. Or he could force his own way. Jacob chooses the latter. He confronts Laban over his treachery. Jacob's tasting a dose of his own medicine. He does not like it at all. And Laban comes up with a pretty lame excuse, probably with a malicious look in his eye. Verse 26, he says, It is not done. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other so that you could return for, uh, also in return for serving me another seven years. I mean, come on, dude, that would have been helpful information yesterday, right? If you had have told me that yesterday, Jacob would have had more of a choice. 
In fact, we have reason to think that Laban just made this up. There is no custom we can find out. You can search all throughout history. This is the only time that perhaps this is a custom. Either way, he successfully tricked Jacob. Once the marriage was consummated, Jacob was legally bound to provide for and protect Leah. He couldn't just annul it. And now he's able to extort an extra seven years out of Jacob. That's exactly what he plans to do. There has to be a week-long honeymoon. That's the standard practice after one gets married. There's a week of honeymoon that happens afterwards, followed by another feast. Then Jacob could begin all of it again and marry Rachel. Another feast, another week, and then a feast to wrap it all up. But this was a bad idea. Jacob knew his father Isaac only had one wife. Jacob knew how much damage it did to Abraham's family to take Hagar as a second wife. He knew that God originally intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman in the garden. Later in Leviticus 18.18, we see that this kind of marriage is expressly forbidden. It says, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. The week-long honeymoon ends with Leah, and he makes the wrong choice. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. He marries Rachel and obviously favors her more. He despises Leah for her part in this deception. And as you can imagine, well, they live happily ever after, don't they? Two wives, both of them sisters. Can't imagine anything going wrong, can you? Not quite. All throughout the book of Genesis, we've been waiting for the servant crusher, right? Haven't we? That servant crusher in Genesis 3 that was promised by God, someone to come and destroy the works of the devil, to restore the conflict between the sexes and restore humanity back to God. And Jacob has just had this dynamic vision, amazing vision of God, this romance with Rachel. And it seems as if this new community might be formed. It seems as if God will begin restoring his people. It was close, but so far, Jacob's failure and the failure of every figure that we find in the Old Testament points beyond them to a better hope. We need a better patriarch than Jacob. We need someone better. We need a better husband. We need a better father. We need a better Lord than Jacob. And who is that? Who bears that weight? But Jesus. Jesus is the better Jacob. Jesus is the one who rejoices over the bride he has, though she may be less desirable to the world. Jesus is the one who rejoices over the bride chosen for him by the Father. He says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He accepts all that the Father gives to him. Jacob ought to have known that Leah was God's choice because Jacob was the Leah of his family. He was the less desirable brother, the unchosen brother, and yet he was chosen by God. God chooses the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chooses the less desirable of the things of this world to show his glory. And God chose Leah before the foundation of the world to be the mother of the Messiah. Our security and faith lies in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is not looking for someone better. He isn't looking for a Rachel. He isn't looking for a bride. He's looking, sorry, for a bride given to him by the Father. Jesus rejoices over the bride he has he does not hate his bride, his church, like Jacob. 1 Corinthians 1.28 God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't pick powerful or strong individuals. He wasn't born to a noble woman. He wasn't raised in a royal household. He didn't raise up armies or associate with the moral authority of the time. Jesus came to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He picked his disciples from working class men like fishermen, immoral men like tax collectors. Jesus took the lowly, despised things of the world and made them strong. Jesus took the ugly things of this world and made them beautiful. He took tax collectors and through repentance made them men that sought the good. He took prostitutes who were undesirable and unlovely and made them lovely and beautiful. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God specializes in taking weak, sinful, scared men like Jacob and fishermen like Peter and John and James and makes them strong. God specializes in taking women with weak eyes and blemishes and spots and wrinkles like Leah and making them splendorous and holy. He did this by giving himself up for his bride. He did this by dying in their place so that they will live. And that is how committed Jesus was to his bride. Your security lies in the fact that he, not only is he not looking for a better church than us, he gave his life to purchase this church. He's working with his church and he is making her splendid and he is making her holy. Trust in Jesus because he is good. He will not abandon you. He will not cast you out. You will not be treated like Leah as the hated spouse, but the dearly loved bride of the groom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you looked down from heaven and you saw the brokenness and filth and sin and wickedness of this world. And Lord, you could have been well within your rights to enter into here as judgment and judge the world as you did in Genesis 6. But Father, you came down and you waded into the filth. You were born into this world of wickedness and you came vulnerable and killable and you chose the weak and lowly things. You chose a young virgin named Mary who was a nobody living in a nobody town in a nobody place. And through her, the Savior of the world was born. And Lord, you came to this world and you sought your bride and you won her with your own blood and you died on her behalf to rescue and redeem her so that she will be presented to the Father without spot, blemish or wrinkle. And Lord, the church will stand holy without blemish, splendid, before you on that day and father we long for that day when we will be with you at the wedding feast of the lamb 
And Lord, until that day, we pray that you would grow your church by your Holy Spirit, that we would grow all the more in wonder and awe of what you have done. Lord, that as we look through the Old Testament and we see these patriarchs for all of their wonderful uh, gifts and talents, Lord, we see so many flaws. And Lord, we thank you that you did not reject us like Jacob rejected Leah, but you loved your weak, foolish and despised church and made a powerful army that has taken this world by force and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.